Well, hello there. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good middle of the night to you, wherever you may be. It is Thursday, the 25th of January, 2024. This is Paul English Live. Well, for this week. And in this week's show, I'm joined by Kenneth Carter, the author of A Nation Upside Down, known as Ken Carter to his friends and Ken Carter to me too. We'll be looking at the American Revolution, the idea that America is no longer a republic, which is more than an idea, it's a sad, tragic truth as Ken's book clearly goes through. Uh, You can uh, join us in Rumble if you want to do a bit of chatting there, and uh, I'll be keeping an eye on those things as the show rolls through. So yeah, welcome back to the show from uh, last week's show, which was jolly good. We're gonna, we're going to be carrying on similar sorts of themes this week. We're here on WBN324.zil. We're here on WBN324.zil every week at this time, and um, my guest coming up uh, very shortly is, as I said, Ken Carter. Anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, that's probably the poorest start we've had so far so i'm setting new lows for uh, for broadcasting and uh, something really confused me there i don't know quite what it was but then regular listeners will be used to this this is paul english live uh it's thursday the 25th of january 2024 uh we're here on wbn324.zil i'm here every week uh usually with a reasonably clean start but not today i'm here uh, every week at the same time 3 p.m u.s eastern 8pm in the UK. And uh, the last few weeks here on the show, we've been looking at um, my kind of favourite sort of topic, the one that I tend to keep coming back to again and again, uh, which is the banking system. And uh, thanks for the feedback, everybody, because uh, I don't know quite what had... Uh, hey, Paul, press the self-destruct button. Yes, I, I did, Drakey Lakey. <laughs> I've turned it off. Um, I don't know quite why I'd press the self-destruct button but for some reason i did so there we go um anyway uh, not anymore we're all back in business something very strange was taking place there but back to my uh thread uh the last few weeks we've been looking at uh, the banking element has been in this in this space and it will probably come up quite a bit today as well on the show uh if you've seen the preview for the show you know i have a guest today it's uh, kenneth carter or ken carter uh, who's going to be joining us momentarily uh, once the show's underway. But if you're not familiar with him, with his work, he's an author who's written a two-volume book called A Nation Upside Down. And it's to do with, well, it's to do with quite a few things. I'm going to let Ken talk about it in a second or two. Um, <clears throat> but one of, the, one of the lines of connection from where we've been talking about the last couple of weeks into this, one of the things that 
I tend to focus on, of course, is the banking line, how the banking line is involved in all of these situations that we're, that we're looking at. But the whole idea of the American Republic and whether it still exists or not is something that Ken goes over in great detail in his book. And before I bring him on, I just want to read something from the book, um, which is on page 184 of volume one. This is a lengthy paragraph, but it'll take about a minute, two minutes to read. Let me just go through this for you. It says this, The republic of our founding fathers is dormant. Corporate fascism has taken its place. The republic died over 100 years ago with Lincoln and the war between the states. We now live in a corporate-controlled, socialist, fascist nation-state, whether Americans want to admit it or not. Our liberties have been gradually eroded as the government has seized more and more authority and control over the people and literally every aspect of their lives. As President Ronald Reagan warned the people, quote, I hope we once again have reminded people that man is not free unless government is limited. There's a clear cause and effect here that is as neat and predictable as a law of physics. As government expands, liberty contracts. It seems that every day brings more instances of tyranny from an increasingly despotic federal government. Communism is the final phase of socialism. Is that where, as a country and people, we are headed? Ken, welcome to the show. You wrote those words. Is that where, as a country and a people, we are headed? What do you think? Yes, absolutely. First of all, thank you, Paul, for having me on. But uh, yes, we are very perilously close to where not only the Republic died 100 years ago, but all facets of freedom uh, will be totally gone in this country and actually worldwide, because this all stems from the global elite whose uh, objective is one world government um, in a new world order. And that will be a government of communism where the people will have virtually no freedom whatsoever. And I hate to say it, but I, I fear that we are perilously close to when that may happen. How does a nice gentleman like yourself get involved in a field of study like this? What's your... <laughs> What's your backstory, Ken? Because I, as I mentioned earlier, pre-show, I've got I've got both I've got both volumes of your book, but I'm only just towards the back end of the first volume, and uh, I read it uh, just before the end of last year, and of course it's been digesting through my system, and I've loved what I've read so far, um, and and it's got some tremendous sorts of themes in it and accuracies and details. But what brought you into this space, and how long have you been? engaged in this sort of field of study? Well, I guess the uh, journey started back uh, around the year 2000. Mm -hmm. I had some problems with the IRS, and back then I was ignorant, like 99% of the American people. I thought the IRS was a legitimate part of the government. I thought whatever income taxes I paid went to running of the government. Subsequently, I found out that neither one of those things is true. But anyway, the IRS claimed that I did not file a tax return back in 1992. Uh -huh. Now, I'm an independent contractor, straight commission. 
Um, so I file quarterly payments. They acknowledged that uh, they did receive my quarterly payments, but they did not receive my uh, uh, income tax form. So that just began a journey um, where they um, uh, levied a, uh, upon my bank account, uh, proceeded to take everything that I had. They empty, emptied every bank account I had. I had three bank accounts open at the time, different banks. Right. Even at one bank account that was closed, they tried to levy on that as well. I had just built a brand-new 4,500-square-foot house after moving to Florida. Ended up losing my house, my family, virtually everything that I have. So that set me on a journey of education because I knew what they did was illegal, unlawful. It's right there in their own IR, Internal Revenue Manuals. Um, it, 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 it's in the IR code. They cannot do what they did to me, but they yep. did it anyway. Why they did it, I'm not completely sure. They wanted to make an example out of me, I guess. But uh, anyway, I ended up... Um, um, since they took everything I had, I couldn't afford an attorney, which turned out to be a blessing. We may talk about that attorneys a little bit later on in the show. Do we have to? <laughs> no, I hope not. <laughs> okay. Well, you might want you might want to hear what I have to say about. I do want to hear. I'm just but, being cheeky, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, it led me to meeting a man by the name of John Jennings. I dedicated my book to John. And what an incredible man uh, John was. Only had an eighth grade education. Just an old country boy. You go to yep. you, you go meet him, and I mean, he looks like a hick. I mean, if if, if people are in Britain and they know what a hick is, well, that's what he looked like. We're all trying and, to become uh, hicks over here again, I think, <laughs> you know, just to get away from things. But yeah, I think most people in England you. know what a hick is. Yeah. So where was he <laughs> okay. from originally? Where did he come from? He was, uh, I had just moved to Florida, and of course, I mentioned the house I built, built a house upon moving to Florida, yeah. and uh, my, my house was built in Land Lakes. He lived in Lakeland, Florida, which is about, oh, 45 minutes or so from where I live. John had been studying the law for many, many years, uh, particularly with regard to the IRS. And uh, he didn't want to at first, but I somehow or another <laughs> gradually convinced him to take me under his wing. Yeah. And that began my education. And I mentioned that the IRS filed a lien against me in the courthouse, which supposedly uh, justified them taking everything I have. But um, through John, I learned uh, to file a show cause complaint, which the IRS, if you file something to... Um, in response to whatever they file, they will never answer because they can't answer because I've since learned that they have no answer. So anyway, they were in default and uh, that led to the lien of uh, being a judge actually signing uh, that the lien was canceled as of record, done away with, gone. Right. And so I did beat the IRS in court a couple of times. What year would and that be then when you beat them? How long ago? That would have been about uh, night, about 2003 or so, 2004. Right. Yes, yes. And um, around, the, and unfortunately, John uh, 
he he was a remarkable man. I mean, I, he, there wasn't anything he couldn't build or take apart, put back together. In addition to his lo- uh, knowledge of the law, learning the law and everything. And anyway, he had uh, an ultra light that he uh, liked to go up and fly every now and then. Mm-hmm. And he had just moved up to South Carolina, took his ultra light out for uh, a flight, and uh, the engine failed. And um, of course, it plummeted to earth and uh, killed John instantly. So, um, I so just how, old would, that, how, how old would he have been at that time? Then? I'm going to say uh, probably late 50s. So a relatively in, young man. I mean, I can say things like yes. that now that I'm in my 60s. I would never have said things like that when I was 24. You know what it's like. Everybody's ancient <laughs> oh, at 50. Absolutely. But really relatively yes. young. Well, that is a loss. Yeah, I wasn't aware of all yeah. that. Sorry. Yeah. And and right at that time, that was right at the time that I had made up my mind I was going to write a book. And just prior to that, for a couple of months prior, um, I had been meeting with John uh, once a week or so and um, recording a conversation with him, asking him questions. But anyway, the problems with the IRS is what got me started. Learning the truth about the IRS, they are not a part of the federal government. The uh, whole banking system, central banking system in the United States, uh, the Federal Reserve is not a part of the federal government. It is a privately owned corporation. And in fact, it is mostly a foreign privately owned corporation. Uh, Are you looking in this direction when you say foreign? I am looking in the direction of the city of London. Well, I'm looking there too right now. (laughs) (laughs) Some fellas... By the name of Rothschild, among yeah. others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, anyway, when I learned the truth, I, I just, I just had to get that out. Now, at the time, <clears throat> I had no idea what a daunting task this would be. Um, I can honestly say the book took me about 15 years to write. Yeah. Most of that research. And um, I love this country. Um, I have ancestors that go back in this country. I have, a, I think it's a fifth or sixth great-grandfather that fought in the uh, Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Um, families from Virginia. Of course, we trace our roots over, over, the, uh, over the pond there to, uh, to England. But uh, I love this country. And I saw the direction that it was going in with these evil forces who had gained control of our government. And I just could not stand by without doing something about it. And that's the book is is a result of that. It's a fantastic book. I'm going to plug it here. Uh, It's A Nation Upside Down by Kenneth Carter. And you can find, I I think I've put the link below the Rumble video. There's a link to it on... uh, Turn the Tide Publishing, that's right, isn't it, Ken, I think? Yeah. Turning the Tide Publishing. Turning the Tide, sorry, I've mucked that one up. But you can find the link to it there, um, and I highly recommend it, even having only read half of it. Um, uh, and it's interesting that this happened to you round about 20 years ago. Well, Correct. for me personally, it's interesting because my story, which many people know, which I'm not going to go into in great detail, but my journey began in 1994, 95, um, when I was 
uh, I connected up with someone who I just thought was a normal sort of business type person. Um, but he was producing newsletters that contained information in it that was about topics that I didn't even know really existed, these topics. They were, it was like a whole world of looking at the nature of, of finance and banking. And I got drawn into this purely because of the compulsive nature of the things that he wrote. I couldn't stop reading them, and uh, he included me on his little private physical email list. And over the course of about two or three years, by the time we got to 1996, my brain was kind of shot, really, with regards to what I actually thought the world was. I'd had an impression about it up until about 34, 35, that I knew how it worked, you see. And then I found out I knew absolutely nothing. Um, so that was that was just a few years before your great thing. I mean, I've not had such an intense path as you in terms of writing writing a book like that, although I've often thought maybe I should. But then, as a researcher... I've come. Uh, I came to the view that there's so many of these books, and no doubt you've been reading them too. I should imagine as part of your research over the past, you know, twenty years or so. <clears throat> well, actually, I can say, Paul, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because, um, yeah, there are other books out there similar, but I've not found any books that go into the depth that I go into in my book. If there were other books that I was just basically rehashing what they had already done, I wouldn't mm -hmm. have gotten into this. I wouldn't have wouldn't have written, written it because it was um, really a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into this book. And, and I say tears because um, I was ignorant before I got into this, before I had these... I mean, I was like every American who I thought, you know, our republic still exists. We, you know, we've got a great country and blah, 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 blah. And, and everything is cool in Washington. And the more I learned, um, the more distressing it became as to what this country had degenerated into. The evil forces that were at work in this country. For... Us English types, who of course have been uh, cajoled into not becoming a republic for all sorts of reasons, right? There's, a, there's plenty of history around here in a similar vein to yours. It's a different tale here, of course. And you're right, right about right. the city of London, and many listeners here are aware of that. But for us, uh, what is, in simple terms, what is a republic? What is it? Okay, well, let me start with democracy first. Because people in this country, right from our politicians, you know, down to the, you know, the factory worker and, you know, the farmer out plowing his field, think that we have a democracy. And, and I guess you could say our government today more resembles a democracy than any other form of government. Mm -hmm. Although, as you read in that paragraph, it's really a corporate fascist state. Yeah. But... <clears throat> A democracy in its purest form <clears throat> is basically mob rule. Every single citizen has a voice or a say in government. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, when you've got a country of 350 million people, I don't, if there are 10,000 people, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it doesn't work. Uh, so the only way for a democracy to work is by elected officials. So the Republic was founded by our founding fathers um, 
by the people electing uh, representatives to to be a voice in government. Well, democracy is similar, except that with a democracy, the citizen becomes a constituent. Very important. And I'll just read to you a de definition from Bouvier's Law Dictionary. Quote, the constituent is bound with whatever his attorney or elected official does by virtue of his authority. And I'll just repeat, the constituent is bound. In other words, when you elect in a democracy that official to public office, you devolve, your sovereignty devolves to that elected official. You yield your sovereignty to that elected official. Mm -hmm. The people are no longer sovereign. Your, that elected official is not answerable to the people. Now, in a republic, which very emphatically, which is what our founding fathers over here gave us, the people are sovereign, and you can see that all throughout the founding documents, the uh, Constitution for the United States of America, in particular the Declaration of Independence, many state constitutions, other documents, letters, and so forth that were written at the time. The people are sovereign. So we do have a system whereby the people uh, elect officials. But when the people elect those officials, the people retain their sovereignty. That official is without question answerable to the people for whatever actions he takes in office. And if the people don't like his actions, you get rid of him. In a democracy, that's a little hard to do, a lot easier to do in a republic. So key difference is the people in a democracy yield their sovereignty to the government. In a republic, the people always, always, always retain their sovereignty. They are sovereign over government. Any elected official, they are answerable to only one source, and that is their God. Right. So in... In pragmatic terms, this answerability that the official has in a republic, how is that actually carried out? For example, you elect someone, he turns out to be a rogue, or she does, which is probably describing nearly all of them, right? And, uh, <laughs> well, it is over here, you know, because of the party system and everything. How, right. what, what were mechanisms were put in place? I, I'm assuming they've been chiseled away to some degree. What are the mechanisms that were available to the sovereign individuals of America to effectively bring their elected officials to heel? How did they do it, or how is it supposed to be done? Well, basically, it's through impeachment or um, elections to, um, uh, to have them recalled from office. But... Uh, to be honest, there weren't really clear-cut guidelines other than impeachment established, you know, by our founding fathers, uh, because they were so. Uh, I, I I guess our founding fathers wrote the documents they wrote with a tremendous amount of foresight. It's almost like they could see through portals of time. Yes. Uh, 
But, however, um, I don't think they foresaw that so many people would get elected into office and be the rogues that they are. Um, they didn't anticipate that. That's one, maybe one of their, their few shortcomings. So, but... Um, it's, it's easy for us to judge anybody, isn't it, in the past from our perspective, because yes. we all yes. always know better. Uh, I've I mentioned this before, you know, we can be very judgmental of what happened to our people on all these nations during all the conflicts of right. the last war and how they were deceived but as i've pointed out many times i too if i'd been alive then would probably have been deceived because i would have had access to the same levels of you know scurrilous information that they got and would have, have exactly. suffered the same sort of thing so in light of what their situation was i mean what was the population of america in 1776 have you any idea what was it roughly tens of millions no, i don't i don't it's interesting no, it to know yeah. yeah, it wouldn't have been that many. I, I would say probably less than 10 million. You see, I mean, if, thinking, if even that much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the sheer uh, scale of populations. Often, you know, you look back in English history and you, you find out how many people were alive in the island at the time. It's like 2 million. I mean, what? All this is yeah. coming out of 2 or 3 million people? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what was, yeah. you know, because the real expansion in numbers has been since, well, the late 1800s in terms of the way that we think about things because of, yeah. I suppose, all of the mechanization of civilization and the production and the use of energy, all these things have caused this explosion in the number of people. But back then in 1776, looking at, I, I guess, effectively, a landmass that was 99% empty of people. Yes, right. Yeah. And even the father, you know, when I say the lack of foresaw, foresight with regard to that, um, I, I can't really quote specific letters off the top of my head, but there were letters from James Madison to other people, from Jefferson to others, um, which did um, speak to this, that maybe there should have been um, some kind of... Um, um, check on getting these to making it easier to get these rogues from office uh, one there were very few things that i think the founding fathers regretted with the constitution the declaration and so forth uh, but another one i'll point out very glaringly was a central bank oh gosh i i have um several quotes in my book from thomas jefferson mm -hmm. uh, james madison where they rude, they uh, regretted the fact that the uh, central a central bank was not um, strictly forbidden in our founding documents, the Constitution for the United States of America. Yeah. They didn't even think that that was possible at that time. And then along comes Alexander Hamilton, who it really makes me mad. Over here, people think of him as a founding father. He was not a founding father. He, he, was, he, he was actually the one that, on behalf of the Rothschilds, started, got the first central bank started in this country. Uh, under George Washington's presidency. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, as far as most Americans should be concerned, he was a traitor, not a founding father. Mm -hmm. I have a particularly low opinion of him too, for the, exactly the same <laughs> reasons. It's difficult to have a... Now, is he the guy that was shot by Aaron Burr? Was it a... Was he... Was that... Was the duel between um, Burr and Hamilton? It was, wasn't it? 
I can't oh, remember. Oh, yes, yes, it was. He, Hamilton yes. got killed. So at least he came to the right sort of sticky end. But you've given me yes. a great <laughs> intro as well, Ken, into something just yet again that I'm going to read out. Um, now, last week uh, we, we touched upon, uh, my guest last week was Eli James, and we touched upon briefly um, Barbara Villiers. Now, Barbara Villiers was a tart. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. <laughs> She was a tart used for cunning purposes uh, back in the 1600s, which is in direct line for bringing about the Bank of England and this nonsense with central banks. She uh, was able to effectively corrupt the court around the king at the time. Now, I also mentioned uh, a great monetary writer called Alexander Del Mar. His works are worth anybody's... Uh, you can't take a casual look at them. I, I won't put it that because it's very ornate writing but one of his books is uh, monetary crimes about barbara villiers it's called barbara villiers or a history of monetary crimes and chapter one this is the first paragraph it's about as long as the one of yours that i read out but i'm going to go through it because it's so appropriate with regards to what you've just said about hamilton he writes the crime of 1666 and you know how they loved their numbers so that year was pivotal it was also the year of the great fire of london and all sorts of other things so the planning was in and up and running right then delmar writes this he says from the remotest time to the 17th century of our era the right to coin money and to regulate its value by giving it denominations and by limiting or increasing the quantity of it in circulation was the exclusive prerogative of the state. In 1604, in the celebrated case of the mixed monies, and of course here in England we're always celebrating that case, nobody knows about this case of the mixed <laughs> monies, right? But it's just his way of describing it. it. It became celebrated at the time. This prerogative, he writes, was affirmed under such extraordinary circumstances and with such an overwhelming array of judicial and forensic authority as to occasion alarm to the moneyed classes of England, they're the villains, right, who at once sought the means to overthrow it. In other words, the mixed monies absolutely established that it was the prerogative of the state, and the growing, burgeoning, alien merchant class were not too happy about that. He goes on, he says, These they found in the demands of the East India Company, formed in 1601, I mentioned this a few months ago, the corruption of Parliament, the, profl the profligacy the profligacy of Charles II and the influence of Barbara Villiers. The result was the surreptitious mint legislation of 1666 and thus a prerogative which next to the right of peace or war is the most powerful instrument by which a state can influence the happiness of its subjects was surrendered or sold for a song to a class of usurers in whose hands it has remained ever since. In framing the American Mint Laws of 1790-92, to 92, Mr. Alexander Hamilton, a young man, then 33 years of age, and wholly unaware of the character or bearings of this English legislation, a point where it, which I would disagree with Del Mar on, he wasn't wholly unaware of this, but he goes on, innocently copied it, did he now, and caused it to be incorporated in the laws of the United States, which is where it still remains, an obstacle to the equitable distribution of wealth and a menace to public prosperity. Um, it's quite an amazing opening little shot, is that. I mean, I just think it's 
it spot on that this case, and it might be just worth reading the next little bit because there's another little indicator in this. He says, more than this, down to the year 1870, this is very interesting, right? The Crown of England, hello, we come into the picture now, had the right, without consulting Parliament, to undo much of this, what is it right here, much of the mischief occasioned by the act of 1666 they could have undone it right through to 1870 and its logical sequel the act of 1816 that is to say the crown had the right and the power to restore the previous monetary system of full legal tender gold and silver coins struck by the state for the convenience of the public and the benefit of trade and not as now merely upon the behest of the banking fraternity in that year this supernal power was surreptitiously filched from the prerogatives of the crown. The evil work was then carried to other countries, especially to the United States of America, where in 1873 it was copied with a faithfulness to its model that could only have been born of design. And this, of course, is absolutely true, Ken, that it's a yes, totally designed ab- absolutely attack. Absolutely true. Yes. yes. Yeah. In fact, in the United States, the uh, Constitution gives the sole exclusive power to coin and mint money to the United States Congress. That has never been repealed. It has never been amended. It is, well, it can't be repealed, but it's never been amended. And along comes the Federal Reserve Act, mm-hmm. which took that power away from Cong- or Congress, yielded it to the Federal Reserve, the power to coin and mint money, print money, um, but did so without any kind of a constitutional amendment. So the whole uh, theory, whole philosophy of the Federal Reserve Bank is void. It's unlawful. It is unconstitutional. Yet we live with that today. Mm -hmm. Congress had no right, no authority, no power to give that authority over to another entity. Something got into the mix, didn't it? Something seriously bad got into the mix. I mean, one observation I've had is that, effectively, it seems to me that the Republic lasted from 1776 to the onset of hostilities in 1860. That's it. Is that about right? That's pretty correct. Officially, um, well, when uh, Congress walked out of... uh, when the southern states walked out of Congress, March 27, 1861, yeah. they, uh, Congress, the remaining northern Congress uh, people, um, adjourned sine day. Now, sine day means without day. And adjourning without setting a date and time to reconvene dissolves the body as a constitutional body. So from, I don't remember, it was a few days after March 27th that they adjourned. But from that date forward, we have not had a lawful constitutional Congress in this country. Now, at that time, Lincoln was ruling, declared military law, martial law. He was ruling under the Military War War Powers Act. And in 1871, with the Act of 1871, the United States officially became a corporation. And so essentially from 1776 until um, Congress adjourned in 1861, um, yeah, we had the Republic. And since 1861, 
for a few years there under military law, and then with the Act of 1871, a, a corporation. And uh, and we love corporations, don't we? We think they're great. <laughs> don't we love them? Uh, I mean, I this <laughs> this country's under the under the control of the corporation of the City of London. And, uh, yes, of course, yes. just like you were talking about, in the, you have this perception of how your nation is given to you by you know, the new, usual channels, your education, supposedly, that's what they called it, all these right. things. And then for some of us, and for more of us, it seems to be certainly courtesy of the internet, there comes this nagging question that might not something be quite right. There's a stink somewhere, and you have to find out where it is. And, of course, they've done a great deal of work to make that trail very difficult to find. And, of course, you're rebuffed or disapproved of all the way down the line. Oh, it couldn't possibly be like that. I had this for years when I was talking to people. About, no, 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 that's not right. right what, what's not right? right? Well, they would never do that to us. How do you know? You, right. you don't know that. <laughs> because of, we are inviting other people, aren't we, outside of this conversation and we need more people in it. But we're, we're basically inviting them to upset the apple cart of their entire life. We're saying, you know all these ideas you've got about how it all works? Yeah, well, guess what? They're all incorrect. What, all of them? Yes, yeah. all of them. They're all incorrect yeah. because you've got the wrong context. And, I mean, the fact that it only lasted, and I say it only, from 1776 to 1860-61... You know, the, one of the questions when I was reading that first part and I was looking at your dates and going through all this, I thought, why? Why only that amount of... Why did it, did it only take them that amount of time? And, of course, it's an entire lifetime for someone who's been born, say, in 1770. You know, they probably wouldn't see that period out. And they would have a wonderful, probably, impression of how life was being managed. And yet, they managed to tunnel their way in and chew it up. Um, uh, um, Andrew Jackson. President Andrew Jackson. Now, he's the guy that took bullets, did he not, to stop. Yes. I mean, he didn't say, shoot me, but he got shot. Or the, the, actually, he didn't get shot. Didn't the gun fail twice? He was, an assassination attempt was placed upon him because he, was, he almost single-handedly rebuffed the arrival of a central bank. This was, what, 1812, 1815, something like that? Yeah, that I don't remember the year, but I even have a quote in there in my book. I don't recall it offhand from mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson, but he, uh, their central bank, when he took office, was there was a central bank in this country, mm -hmm. and he refused to uh, renew the charter of the central That's right. bank. He did away with the central bank. God bless him for that. Now he took a lot of heat for it, but um, yeah, he was adamant. And uh, again, adamantly against the central bank and saw the evils that, that they were perpetuating in this country. Yeah. I, um, this whole period, you know, from you lot causing us lot trouble. <laughs> all that kind of stuff, you know, from Cornwallis all the way through. I mean, that, that thing that Cornwallis said supposedly, um, which is in the, what is it, Legions of the Damned by this book, Williams, which nobody can get a copy of. Um, although there's this little phrase, you know, that when he was with Washington, he said it was almost like he was nonplussed by the fact that, that the Americans had won their independence. And he talks about the fact that, you know, you're, everything's going to fall into the hands of effectively international bankers. That's really what he said. And you will end up being shifted over to that, which, of course, to me... Uh, talks about the hand of the Freemasons within this 
um, what would you call it, traitorous and ruinous approach to America. They obviously must have played a key role in all of this, it seems to me. Oh, the Freemasons, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, most of the global elite are uh, even former presidents of the United States um, going back to, uh, well, they even say George Washington was a Freemason. But, you know, I would say that um, it's only, of course, I don't know what level George Washington uh, reached in Freemasonry, and it's only at the upper levels where they're so evil. There are Freemasons down at the lower levels, Freemasonry, that they regard the organization as, a, as an altruistic organization. They regard it more as a social club where you get together with your buddies and you hang out and drink a beer, and, mm-hmm. or maybe uh, in England it's a pint, <laughs> whatever. But, um, yeah, going back in, in time from Franklin D. Roosevelt, particularly on forward, uh, these presidents and upper-level government uh, in the United States were all Freemasons and at the over, upper levels of Freemasonry. Yes. Yeah, was, was Franklin, was Benjamin Franklin a Freemason or not? What do you know? Yeah, they that? say he was. They mm-hmm. say he was. And, but again, Freemasonry wasn't at yeah. that time or perceived to be at that time what it is today or what it has uh, evolved into. Now, I do have, in part two, I do have a section on Freemasonry. And, um, you know, it's not a good organization at all, a lot of evil there. But, um, you know, when you read the writings of George Washington, uh, read his speeches, Benjamin Franklin, too. I mean, these men were patriots. They loved this country, uh, yep. believed in a Republican form of government. Uh, in fact, it was uh, Benjamin Franklin. When a lady asked him as he exited the uh, Constitutional Convention, a uh, lady came up to him and asked him uh, what kind of government did they have. And uh, Franklin replied, a republic, if you can keep it. <laughs> so they they understood what a republic was, and but they also understood that there would be challenges in maintaining or keeping that republic. Is now in terms of the first republic in the world, that would be the United States of America in seventeen seventy six. Is that right? Is that the first republic uh, that no, we're aware I, of? I believe it goes back to Rome. Doesn't it go back to Rome? Oh, of course it does. Yeah, silly on me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know if it goes back any further than that. They did um, quite well as a republic, then, didn't they? Until it they got did. towards it, the back end of it all, when it did right. very bad. Yeah. Yeah. When but, they actually went from a republic to a democracy, <laughs> exactly what's happening or has happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just another word on democracy, Karl Marx stated, quote, democracy is the road to socialism. Yes. Another quote from him, socialism leads to communism. Yes. Uh, a quote from Vladimir Lenin, quote, Dem- a democracy is, in- democracy is indispensable to socialism. <laughs> so once you reach uh, democracy, uh, democracies have never 
lasted any great period of time throughout history. They've always been temporary in nature. Yeah. Yeah, they succumb, don't they? I mean, it is like, it's slow burn, soft communism is democracy. It's the path into it. It can't end up going anywhere else. And of course, communism, I would suggest, is the ultimate expression of capitalism in the sense that capitalists looking for good people to lend money to found out that the best people to lend money to and control were nations in, in their entirety. And one of the things I've mentioned to people, you know, passing light bits of chit-chat is I point out to the English that they live in a communist country, to which nearly everyone objects and says, no, that's not true. (laughs) But I say, if you look at the manifesto of the Communist International, two of the main planks are a central bank, you have one of those, Mr. Smith, and uh, a progressive income tax, Mrs. Smith, you pay that too. And we've lived under that for a long time. This whole period from your country getting off the mark in 1776. Um, I mean, I've been discussing, and I mentioned to you pre-show, from time to time I'm dipping into the the whole of the French Revolution, which, of course, is clearly not French. It's absolutely not French at all. <laughs> um, obviously, French people got involved in it and suffered a great deal, which is always the story uh, here. Um, but the agitators, the organisers of it, had vast sums of money and pounded away for years before they were able to actually finally you know, start chopping heads off with the sort of uh, repetition that they were keen to get on with. And, of course, that then imploded as well. Um, And this is all because, you know, I was just looking at the Napoleon situation, who I still don't know anywhere near enough about him, other than he was a very busy lad doing a lot of very interesting things, not all of them good. And just coming back to this thing about Freemasons that you mentioned as well, I don't want to create the impression that it's all bad, because there must have been a point when it wasn't. What's interesting, or what's... The problem seems to be that no matter what our people build, it starts off good and it starts to go bad almost immediately. And we don't seem to be able to correct that, to stop the badness leaking in. And I do view the central bank and the control of money as being the main portal into corrupting and ruining everything that we build in substance. It gets chewed up by the money power. Everything. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, as regular listeners will know, guests are asked to supply a couple of songs, and I think it's time to have one. So, um, I think, would you? Is there any preference in which order you would like the songs to be played, or would you just like me to pick one, Ken? Pick one. (laughs) We'll play the one that you first mentioned. Okay, we're going to take a short break. This is called "The Cross Has the Final Word" by Newsboys. I'd never heard this before. We're going to play this. We'll be back after this short break about three or four minutes here we go the cross has the fine word the cross has the fine word sorrow may come in darkest night but the cross has the final word there's nothing stronger Oh, 
Attention all listeners, are you seeking uninterrupted access to WBN 324 Talk Radio despite incoming censorship hurdles? Well, it's a breeze. Just grab and download Opera Browser, then type in WBN324.ZIL. And stay tuned for unfiltered discussions around the clock. That's WBN324.ZIL. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on the World Broadcasting Network are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of its owners, partners, and other hosts or this network. Thank you for listening to WBN324 Talk Radio. Hi and welcome back. We're uh, just over a third of the way through. I'm here with uh, Kenneth Carter, the author of A Nation Upside Down. We're discussing banking and the American Revolution and republics and the lack of them thereof and all the other attendant topics that come with it. Ken, that song, why did you pick that song? I'm, it's like, uh, <laughs> I just, I'm interested to know the backstory is always interesting, you know, why people pick yes. certain things. Yes. yes. Well, it, I actually ended my book with, uh, I'm not, I didn't call it a chapter, I called it a coda. And I just happen to be a professional musician. And if you're uh, familiar with music, coda is the final section of a piece of music. And I quote the lyrics in that coda. And um, the reason I selected that song and the reason I quoted the lyrics was because very often in writing the book, this can be a very, very dark subject. And <clears throat> the more I got into it, the more darkness that I could see. And there were times, I it actually was depressing. And there were a few times in writing the book, I just had to walk away from it for a month or two months because it was just so dark, so depressing, yeah. so gloomy. And however, near as I was nearing the end of writing the book, uh, this song came on the radio, first time I had ever heard it, and it just stopped me in my tracks, right. and it reminded me that there is hope, that it doesn't really matter what happens here on earth. Okay, so there's a one world government, so there's a new world order, so we're all under communism. Well, I happen to be a Christian, I make no apologies for it, so I know if that happens, I'm out of here, I'm going up in the rapture. But there was just so much hope in that song that I thought it was uh, an appropriate way to end the book, to give the people uh, a feeling of hope that as bad as it may look, uh, we still have a chance to turn things around, and there is hope. I want people to be encouraged. And let me say one other thing, too. Very, very important, I think. Um, I mentioned I'm a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to read this book. If you're an agnostic or I'm an atheist, I don't care. Uh, this book, the primary core theme of this book is freedom. And I don't care if you're an agnostic atheist or what Hindu, I don't care what you are. Um, you're still our brother. We're all created by God in the image of God. We're all brothers here on earth. And I try to make that point several places in the book. If you're not a believer, that's fine. We love you anyway. So please get the book, read the book. But throughout the book, I really tried to 
weave in <clears throat> um, encouragement and uh, a feeling of hope no matter how bad things looked. And when I heard this song, I thought, man, probably a strange way to end a book. <laughs> but what a way to leave a feeling of hope, yes. you know, uh, on the reader. I, I, I mean, I think the connection from banking into the Bible for me is a really strong one. It might sound bizarre. I don't yes. know how that sounds. But it, I ended up going into studying the Bible, and I'm still sort of doing that, but maybe not from a perspective um, that's uh, as well known in, in all sorts of ways. I'm very interested in the definitions of the words um, because to me they've kind of thrown up a different story. But just, I mean, the root, I ended up, because of studying the banking stuff, and finding out that it was bent all out of whack, you naturally, you you end up going into all sorts of documents written by the people who are mainly responsible for the banking. Let's put it that way, okay? And because of that, you have to, I ended up studying them more than I studied Christianity, to be quite honest. I wasn't studying that at all. Yeah. But it brought me to it or to what it is and i've got probably a slightly different definition of it to you but i don't we don't need to settle on that in this show because you're definitely coming back at some point and we can roll through <laughs> it at another day but i think uh you you end up with that section on just weights and measures this whole thing about just weights and measures and you're the darkness is that we seem to be involved in trying to counteract their system, whereas, in fact, their system is not worth counteracting. We have to come out of it. There's an instruction several times throughout Scripture to come out of this thing, yes. which, of course, yes. and you go, well, how do I do that? And it's a very, very good question. How do you do it when everybody that you relate to or work with has to be a part of it? And the whole of the monetary thing, um, when people are talking about the economy, which they do, you know, and the news is the economy, the economy, the economy, it just goes on and on and on and nothing, they never actually reveal to you what they're really talking about. It's just, you know, a lot of nonsense and that there's no, and we've got to do this to solve it. But of course, the Bible has the solution. It's called the year of Jubilee, the forgiveness of yes. all debts. We just, yes. what, what? Yeah, we just reset everything back to zero. Well, but, but these people owe me money, so what? You don't owe anybody else any money either. It's all cleared off. You're not going to lose your house or anything. I mean, what's this all about? But the whole mechanism, of course, is designed to continually absorb your wealth and to place it, which it does, into, into ever fewer hands. That's effectively what the monetary system that we have to endure does. Um, and, of course, your country is now cursed with it, courtesy of Barbara Villiers. We can blame her <laughs> completely. No, we can't. <laughs> we, we can't blame old Barbara. She was just doing what came to her with her feminine wiles. But it was obviously, you know, it's not a new ploy, that. And it obviously worked very effectively to get these key laws shifted out of the way so that effectively private cartels, which is what we've got, control the monetary system. And... And, you know, I've mentioned here before, and I'll probably keep on droning on about this and saying it again, but until we correct that or find the mechanism to bring it to its knees, I'm at a loss to see how all the other areas that need affecting can truly be affected because it's like it's like a water leak is that stuff. You're building something good and it just keeps getting flooded again and again and again because they're controlling this spigot. And, and it's you go, well, from a pragmatic point of view, how are we supposed to deal with that? Well, the only way, of course, is that the ownership of, if you're going to have a central bank, the ownership, you must be the sovereign owner of it, just like you were talking about the status of Americans prior to 1860. You have to be the sovereign of your own stuff, 
and that why does that not include the bank i mean why does that, it not include that's it that's right yeah it should it absolutely should and the constitution for the united states of america says it does but that's been hijacked by the corporate government through the federal reserve act yeah you're absolutely right. Listen to this. This is a speech from Godfrey Bloom from a, a few years ago in the European Union, one of these think tanks. Listen to this. It is my opinion that you do not really understand the concept of banking. All the banks are broke. Uh, Bank Santander, Deutsche Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, they're all broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. It isn't some sort of tsunami. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's a criminal scandal, and it's been going on for too long. To add to that problem... You have moral hazard, a very significant moral hazard, from the political sphere. And most of the problem starts in politics and central banks, which are part of the same political system. We have counterfeiting, sometimes called quantitative easing, but counterfeiting by any other name. The artificial printing of money which if any ordinary person did, they'd go to prison for a very long time. And yet governments and central banks do it all the time. Central banks repress the amount of interest that rate, rates are, so we don't have the real cost of money. And yet we blame the real retail banks for manipulating LIBOR. The sheer effrontery of this is quite astonishing. It's central banks. It's central banks that manipulate interest rates, Commissioner. And plus, underneath all this, we talk loosely, in a rather cavalier fashion, do we not, about deposit guarantees. So when banks go broke through their own incompetence and chicanery, the taxpayer picks up the tab. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians, to prison for this outrage, it will continue. Godfrey Bloom there a few years back, uh, make, saying all the right things, don't you think, Ken? Absolutely, yeah. And what strikes me about that is the almost non-existent applause at the end of it. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. <laughs> because obviously their, their bread is buttered by this very central banking system that needs to be yes. torn down. Yes. And it's so there's a blockage. It's you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about things I never thought I would think about at all. You think, why am I wasting my time? It seems like that. How, how are we to get these people out of the way? I mean, I've often thought, well, maybe I just write them a letter, dear Mr. Blah 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 blah. Would you just <laughs> mind stopping this central bank lock? It's really it's had its day, you know. Uh, we're all a bit cheesed off with it. Um, it's worrisome, it's, it's the cause of most of the wars and death and ruin. It's not actually helping anybody apart from you a bit and you've got plenty of stuff already so let's just knock it on the head shall we of course i'm being facetious and stupid all at the same time in putting it that way um because you know you're dealing with a lot of determined people because it seems to me that if that power that they have is rolled back it's going to reveal so much grime underneath the carpet that they've been involved with that they they really would be for the high jump in so many ways and, and so it's this battle to get the idea across. And even if you got it across, they're not going to acknowledge it or even understand it. A bit like that very low level of, of applause. It's sort of like, oh, we don't want to talk about that because it directly affects the way we live and what, how we want to do things. You know. Yes. 
I even, um, I can't remember who it was now in my book, I quote a banker, I think he was with the uh, Minneapolis uh, Federal Reserve Bank, um, and the quote went something like, if the American people really understood the banking system, mm -hmm. they would revolt by morning. <laughs> Yes, I it's can't in remember. the book somewhere. Yeah, but. no, I, I know that quote as well. Yeah, they would. Absolutely. I mean, there's been... <laughs> yeah. The thing is, I, I look at all the research done by these fantastic people that we've got on our side, down through the ages. You know, Ezra Pound did amazing work. Yes, he gets, yes. you know, he appoints Mullins to go off and write basically the first reveal of the central banking system. Pro yes. There were certain books over here, but Mullins' book is outstanding because of that. Then, you know, it makes you think, well, what about the Bank of England? Oh, no, no, it's all proper here at the Bank of I don't think so. I think there's probably something, you know, and all all of this kind of stuff. When I when I was in trouble with the Bank of England, I've mentioned this before. I used to call them up. I did it about two or three times. I stopped. It was it was more like an entertainment for myself. I was trying to establish who was the shareholders. I said, "Have you got a list of who owns the Bank of England?" They said, "Well, we don't give out that information." I said, "But you do have shareholders." And they said, "Well, we don't give out that information." I said, "Well, you kind of have. You know, you kind of have told me that you've got shareholders, but you're saying I can't find out there. We're not at liberty to provide that information, and that kind of stuff. You know, so there are shareholders. And my question to Joe Public is, why isn't it you? Isn't Sorry. that the campaign? Why, why are you, as an American, denied a share in the Federal Reserve? I accept that the mechanisms that they use, um, we, we can be and should be critical of them. You know, the inflation of the money supply, the uh, setting of interest rates, the fixing of the gold price, which was the privilege of the Rothschilds for an awful long time. And then they say they didn't do that anymore. But do I believe that? I don't really know. <laughs> and who says that these guys in an office somewhere are the ones who are supposed to fix the price? You know, where does the power lie? It must lie, it seems to me, that there's such a coterie of benefactors from this that they supply, that they keep in, that they keep right on their side. And they provide this defensive wall against which we would literally exhaust our lives trying to change them. Um, I've mentioned before, you know, that uh, there was a group I used to meet at in, with in London, and their approach was to get this. Um, I mentioned it last week, actually, but it's worth repeating. Their, their idea was to get a motion, an early day motion at the Houses of Parliament, with the view that people would listen to it and then act on it. And I was saying, even back then, I said, that, that's not what's going to happen. Just like Godfrey Bloom's speech, it may be crammed with truth, but the recipients aren't interested in it. And we don't seem to have the power to get them out because we're not a republic. How do we get rid of these people? How do we really hold them accountable in day-to-day -day pragmatic living? I don't know how we do that. We certainly have no means of doing it over here. Um, although you'll be pleased to hear, Ken, I've never contracted with a, uh, with a politician because I've never voted in my life. Um, out of instinct more than anything else. I've never given my sovereignty over to one of those creeps. I don't want it on my CV, and I'm, I don't intend to ever do it under the current circumstances. It's a ridiculous sort of situation. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, that was one of the things that struck me in your book, as I said earlier, this thing about... Um, from so It took from 1776 to 1860... But there were, there were a lot of actions, were there not, in that period, as you mentioned earlier, certainly with Andrew Jackson, to try and get, your, get you a central bank because, you know, Hamilton was pretty sure it was a good thing, even though, according to uh, Del Mar there, it was all innocently done. But, of course, I, don't, I can't really subscribe to that. The rest of the statement he made was, was fantastic, but not that one, I think. Um, 
Where do you think it leaves us now going ahead? Where do you think, what actions do you think normal people could take? I'm always interested to know what, what people's thoughts are about what we should be doing, apart from talking about it like we are doing right now. We should be doing plenty of that, yeah. but in addition to that, maybe. What do you think? Well, number one is education. And you know what? It really boils down to it. That's why I wrote the book, to educate the people. People need to know. And um, one thing I point out in the preface to my book is that the book is truth. It's not Republican, Democrat, left, right. It's none of these things. It's not disinformation, misinformation, whatever. It's truth. And to that end, there's over 1,000 footnotes in that book. Mm -hmm. So if you disagree with something I say in there, simply look up the sources do the research for yourself, and you will come to the same conclusion that I came to. But number one is education. Uh, number two, there are things, take the uh, uh, country of Iceland. I don't remember the year back in mid-2000s, 2010, 12, somewhere along in there. They had what they called a pots and pan revolution. Mm -hmm. And that's where the people of Iceland, and I do talk about this, my book, it's in part two, the people of Iceland got fed up with central bankers, the corruption, uh, they uh, gathered by the hundreds of thousands, if not a million, outside the, uh, uh, the, uh, the government building, they brought pots and pans with them, and they banged on the pots and pans until the uh, legislators came out. Well, there was enough pressure put. They drove the central bank out of Iceland. Uh, Iceland no longer has a central bank. The central bankers that didn't leave, uh, some of them weren't allowed to leave. They were arrested. Uh, the others were forced out of the country and can never come back into the country. So that's, you know, maybe one way, but that is going to take millions of people irate with with uh, an educated background showing up at their state capitals and protesting day after day after day, whatever it takes to bring the corporate government down and to force the changes uh, that we need. Um, now, another thing is um, chapter 10 in my book is, is on Nasara. Some of you may, may be familiar with that. It, uh, what that stands for is the National Economic... Um, um, I'm uh, familiar stabilization. Yeah, right, stabilization. Yeah, Stabilization and, and uh, Restoration Act. And that act, um, there's uh, an interesting history behind it, but Clinton was forced to sign, President Clinton, when he was president, was forced to sign that at gunpoint by Navy SEALs and uh, other elite military. It is law. Um, it was to be announced on uh, September 9th of 2001, and uh, uh, September 11th, 2001, and guess what happened on September 11th? The Twin Towers. Mm -hmm. So the announcement, it did not happen at that time. The law has been buried in the vaults of the uh, Supreme Court, uh, waiting for the right time and the right people to uh, bring that uh, law forth and to announce it to the public. 
and that would restore the republic, do away with the central bank, the Federal Reserve, do away with the IRS, which is blatantly unconstitutional. Uh, it would also, there would be a debt jubilee where all debts, mm-hmm. as you were talking about earlier, Paul, would yep. be wiped out. And uh, then there would also be a, a reclamation uh, allowance to all Americans that had paid into the income tax system and and uh, uh, other forms of pay- mortgages and so forth would all be reclaimed by the American people. So that law is there. It just needs enough people to know about it to force it out into the open and the implementation of that law. Oh, and by the way, one of the most important aspects of the law would be it restores the gold standard to our currency. Uh, Every single dollar bill, paper dollar bill, they would become United States notes, not Federal Reserve notes, but every single dollar bill has a serial number on it and uh, would be tracked to a serial number on a, a bar of gold bullion stored in uh, the reserves, wherever they store it, um, for the United States Treasury. Um, so there are other things that can be done too, but um, Nasara and the people just being educated and raising their voices and doing it through uh, elections. Um, I do make a lot of, I uh, do have a section in part two on the election system which has got to change. Uh, One of the things I suggest in there is that every eligible voter, and by the way, I'll just back up a minute and add to what you said, Paul. I haven't voted since the late 1990s. Once I found out what happens when you vote, when you register to vote in this country, you uh, have to sign a pledge that uh, you vow under oath that you are a citizen of the United States. That is a 14th Amendment citizen. And a 14th Amendment citizen is a citizen of the corporate federal government. You have no unalienable rights. You have nothing but privileges that are given to you and can be taken away at the whim of the federal government. But anyway, I stayed in this uh, thing on uh, chapter on uh, uh, elections. You need an ID. You verify who the people are. You uh, print a, uh, have an ID with their, um, like a driver's license, with their picture on it, in color, with a hologram, with their uh, current um, uh, uh, address where they uh, are domiciled, where they live, and Forget computer ballots. Uh, You vote in person. The only exception to that would be maybe people like the military who may be living abroad, although I believe any military that's living abroad should be brought back to this country. We don't need military in other countries, but that's an aside. But but Mm -hmm. anyway, a voter ID that cannot be almost impossible to forge. And uh, states in this country are rejecting that. Why are they rejecting that? I mean, you can get a, you, ha- you have to have a driver's license with a hologram and all this kind of stuff on it. And so why doesn't it make sense to have a similar thing for voting? 
I mean, they just don't want that kind of voting re reform because that does away with voter fraud. And I do make the statement in my book uh, that unless there is serious and significant voter reform, there will never again be free and fair elections in this country. And having said that, if that happens, this country is doomed. And right along with it, it'll probably bring down the rest of the world right along with it. Yep. Well, you've got one. You've got a shindig coming up later this year, don't you? You're in for yep. a, a ride. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Um, now, judging by the popularity of President Trump, he should win an overwhelming landslide victory. But he won 2020 in an overwhelming landslide victory. It was voter fraud that got Biden in. As pre he's, he's not a legitimate president in this country. No, and I really? Venture to say that probably, <laughs> and I venture to say probably 70% of Americans understand that and realize that. And why they're not willing to do something about that, I don't know. It, it's frustrating. That's where the education, I guess, comes in. And the same thing could happen in 2024 unless there is some kind of a significant change in voter registration. They seem to be all in on mayhem because the, I, uh, I don't want to clutch at straws, but it appears that they don't have any other options. I mean, if we look at it historically as well, this is the option they've always gone to. When things have got tight, they've caused war. That's what they do. And under the fog of war, they're able to restructure things, drum people into dying, get rid of lots of creditors, and this, that, and the other. This, you know, under the fog of war, a lot of troublesome people can be got rid of, and that certainly seems to be part and parcel of what's taking place right now. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of Trump or any of them. You know, one reads all sorts of things, and it says, no, he's really playing a very deep level of 500-dimension chess. Okay, jolly good. Maybe he is. <laughs> Maybe he is. I'm, I'm unlikely to know. I'm also unlikely to know what threats, if any, he's receiving. I mean, that's the, you know, I've mentioned here before that if we were to find a good body of men and women, but mainly men, I do believe politics should be for men. Um, we can do a show on that later, if you like, <laughs> but I do. There's all yeah, sorts of reasons yeah. why, because I think a, a, a feminine instinct is, is ideally suited for the home and not for national affairs where it's it's too kindly and creates more problems out of a sense of kindness we've had an example of that recently actually but um right right the that whole that situation with with getting a good body of men into politics how let's suppose they existed and they say we're a good bunch of blokes we know what to do and we look at their policies and we go this is this is exactly what we want i mean most people listening to this could write a few down and we go yeah go for that That'd be great, you know. Like, I'll cancel all debts. Really? Yeah. I mean, that'd be my first thing. You know, you, what are you going to do when you're in power, Paul? Well, apart from watching my back 24-7 and, and, you know, waiting for when the bullet's going to come or something like that, we'd have the bankers down on Monday morning and I'd say, right, you need to draw up plans to, to transfer ownership of the bank to each uh, British person. 
and what we you know, get the list it'll be x mil x xd millions 40 millions or whatever it is and i want them all to have a certificate in the bank and uh, we're going to cancel all the debts and uh, all you troublemakers the private bankers you've got to just lay off and all that's what i want i want that okay so that's the first policy <laughs> i go okay we'll just do that you know we'll do that because we, we we think we think it's a jolly good idea too of course they're not going to say that they think other things are jolly good ideas basically ruining the fun for everybody else and, and putting people under pressure so um it's how these things are implemented. How would I? How would we, as an electorate, if we were one in a situation like that, whether it's in the UK or America, how do you go about protecting those people? I mean, literally, physically, so they don't get a bullet, so that they're not threatened, so that their family are not poisoned. I mean, it's such an insane space. Uh, and obviously, it seems to me that it must be based on the most horrific threats. Uh, that's all I can do. I, t- I tend to not dwell on it because I think they're in such a pit of darkness that it's obviously idiotic for someone like me to think that if I communicated with them, they might change their mind. They're too far gone. They're never coming back to us, ever, are they? Uh, They've had so many opportunities to do the right thing, and yet every single time they choose to do the thing which is for them and which is to the detriment of everybody else, and then lie about it. And um, Well, one one of the things, Paul, that I state in my book concerning elections is that Every single person, first of all, we need term limits. This idea of somebody being in Congress or state government or whatever, you know, for 50 years or 40 years or whatever is absurd. Founding fathers never intended that. And in fact, one of the things, you know, in addition to a central bank, one of the things Jefferson ruled as an omission, you know, to the Constitution was this whole idea of term limits. Mm-hmm. But we need term limits. Secondly, we need just plain regular folk uh, in in Congress, in government, state government, in, in the federal government. Um, just plain, you know, whether it's a soccer mom or a farmer or a mechanic. Um, I mean, they have to have some semblance of common sense. But anyway, I state in my book that anyone running for office, he must come up with a written stated platform which is published in the media online in uh, newspapers wherever of what their platform will be and then they will be they swear under penalty of perjury under oath that they will pursue that platform and it must be specific it's not oh i'm going to improve transportation well, what does that mean? I'm mm-hmm. going to improve education. What does that mean? I mean, does that mean now we're going to um, teach uh, pornography in elementary school? Is that their definition of improving well, it education? Is, isn't it? That is their well, definition now, of it. Currently, is, yeah, it is. But anyway, it must be specific, and it must be in writing. And if once they get into office, then they are bound in their office by that oath, that pledge to the American people. And if they fail to live up to that pledge or if they try to do something contrary, they better have a doggone good reason for it or they're out of office. Yeah. Uh, so combined with term limit, in, in other words, politicians today, we're talking, I talked about democracy earlier. You know, they can say whatever they want to say. 
you know, they can say, oh, we're going to have world peace. Uh, yeah, I'm going to improve the infrastructure. Again, what does that mean? They can say whatever they want to say. Then when they get in the off, into office, they are not accountable to the people. So they do whatever they want, forget whatever they said in their campaign. And we have to get away from that. We have to stop that. We need honest people. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking back to enforcement, read- I suppose. That question I was asking earlier, not necess- not trying to put you on the spot. It's just a question I'm asking myself. You know, what are the mechanisms by which a sovereign people can ensure they remain sovereign? What are the How are the courts to be managed? One of the things when I look at, say, the so-called proceedings of the law is that I find it distasteful and dissatisfactory. It's just full of obfuscation, manipulation, linguistic corruption. All of these things have taken place. And it seems to me that obviously the presence of juries in common law courts seems to me to be a much closer approximation to biblical law. In fact, it might be bang on with it. And I've often thought in terms of the proceedings of the law in the country, yet again, I'm putting my I'm Prime Minister hat on, right? I would make practically every case that comes before a court a matter of a jury, from a parking ticket upwards. Now, of course, the objection would be, but that's going to be so expensive. Well, maybe in the early term it would be, but wouldn't that assist the average guy in the street, if there is such a thing, but him and her, to be involved with the law so that it becomes a dynamically much more living thing? I mean, I accept it's ponderous. You know, maybe in a, in a town of... 10,000, it's doable. In a country of 350 million, whoa, you know, do you know how many court cases come up every minute? Uh, And how many jurors we've got to find? Well, we need to get organised. But you would feel that the law would then live in the living rooms of all these people that had been on jury duty to some degree. I mean, maybe I've got a ridiculous view of it and someone's going to call in and say, you idiot. No, I think you're spot on. But the problem, Paul, is we no longer have, I don't know, I don't think you have it in England either, but here we no longer have common law. Mm-hmm. We have a system of, of uh, laws and statutes and, and codes and all this kind of stuff. Um, I point out in my book, when you get into uh, Chapter 10, talking about the attorneys and the Bar Association, there's over 60 million laws on the books throughout this country. That's absurd. Who can, who, who, there's no way you can know 60 million laws. That, that's ridiculous. Then if we, so I mean, we if need, we use logic on that, right, which I'd like to, let's have a go. Here, well, we that's use logic what on, common... That's what common law is. Common law is logic. And we can do it if we're doing it town by town by town. Mm -hmm. So you get five, ten thousand people, twenty thousand people. It becomes manageable to have a common law jury, a common law court. Now, if you're talking about three hundred and fifty million, you know, it's got to be on the local level. And the other thing is we need to get rid of uh, the Bar Association. Um, I, I'll just the, the British accreditation get... registry, isn't that what it's? <laughs> That's for? right. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And guess where it's based out of? It's based out of the city of London. No, and you're just making owns... this stuff up, Ken. That's nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and guess who owns it? The Rothschilds own it. It's not me. I don't have fun. share certificates in the bar. I can tell you that. For <laughs> the only bar I go to is the one where they pull beer, you know, and that's about it. But yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't. We're, we're in a flow, but I'm going to interrupt you now. Song, next song. Yeah, go ahead. Now you've got a choice. Oh, okay, right? yeah. You've got a choice because 
our, our resident uh, mixer who remixes these songs, and he's remixed the first one, which if we get time, we might even play it again at the end because he sent me a note saying it's fantastic the way it's remixed. So what's happened is these songs have been remixed at 432 hertz, but you have a choice with your second song. We'll talk about it afterwards. You can either have the rock version or the country version. I've got them both here in front of me. Which would you like? Look at this. It's all laid on on a plate here. <laughs> rock or I country? I would like... I would like the the uh, country version. I'm yeah. not really a country fan, but I want the country version because I think that speaks to the American people. Fantastic. Okay, this is uh, this is Ken's second song. I'm just going to play it. We'll talk about it afterwards. With uh, this three and a half, four minutes long. Here we go. Ideals I think are right And I can stand beside That did stand and fight I do believe There's a dream for everyone This is our country There's room enough here For science to live And there's room enough here For religion to forgive And try to understand
Attention all listeners, are you seeking uninterrupted access to WBN 324 Talk Radio despite incoming censorship hurdles? Well, it's a breeze. Just grab and download Opera Browser, then type in WBN324.ZIL. And stay tuned for unfiltered discussions around the clock. That's WBN324.ZIL. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on the World Broadcasting Network are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of its owners partners and other hosts or this network. Thank you for listening to WBN 324 Talk Radio. Hi and welcome back to uh, the last section of the show. You listen to Paul English Live here on WBN 324. We're also going out over Speak Free Radio, Eurofolk Radio, we're on Rumble, we might be on certain Global Voice Network, not to forget them too. And as for our opinions not coinciding with the owners, they certainly don't coincide with central bankers, do they, Ken? <laughs> they certainly do not. No. Now that song, who was that? You, you, you do the spiel. Who was that? What was the song? Why did you pick that one? Uh, the song, it was by John Mellencamp, and yep. if I'm not mistaken, John Mellencamp's a Brit, isn't he? I don't know. I um, Is he? Shout out to the people uh, in Rumble. Is John Mellencamp a Brit or what? I thought he was Canadian, but then maybe he's none of these. But I always thought he was an American. I, have to, I think he was. But yeah, I'm, I'm not, sh- not sure, but yeah. But anyway, um, I selected that song because this is our country meaning the country of the people. It does not belong to the central bankers. It does not belong to the global elite or deep state or whatever label you want to put on this. Um, It is our country and is up to us, the people, to reclaim what is rightfully ours, to restore the republic. So when are you going to get that done, Ken? (laughs) We've got the same challenge here. Going back to the point you were making just before the break there, this thing about education and, and you know, communication, all of these sorts of modern skills are, are the ones that are more, uh, you know, endemic all over the place. We have to find, it seems to me, such a, a fast and simple, alarming way to get the points across in very, you know, quick, in a, in a very quick way. Like I've mentioned before, the thing I've kind of reduced my pitch down to with regards to the bank for example this thing that is a blight upon all of us is this thing about holding a share in it do you own the bank of england mr smith no well why not would you like to (laughs) i don't know should i own it well you live here you you're under the laws of this land which is part of you isn't it it says so somewhere why don't we own it i mean it's just a bizarre why don't we actually own the very thing that is the most powerful force in our lives and why are you not educated about it at school so instead of me saying you know and i've tried all this stuff i can put people to sleep over central banking 30 to 40 seconds people want to leave the conversation don't you find that they want to leave they go oh i can't be doing with this i'm going no but it can be doing with you it's feeding off of your life right you're not interested in getting rid of it maybe or having it be the an honorable situation opposed to this wretched cruel thing that it has become in the hands of people who are clearly now your enemy whether they started off that way it doesn't really matter they conduct themselves that way and i'd mentioned here last week or somewhere else you know that 
when babies are born, they're given birth certificates. But I think we should be given share certificates, in our case, in the Bank of England. And so should you in the Bank of America. <laughs> Why don't you get that when you're born? You go, there you go. There's an American baby. And this is it. This is your, And it lasts with you your entire life. You can't transfer it. And if there are any dividends due, they go straight into your account. There we go. Now we've got, we've got the even distribution of <laughs> – we've got it equitable, which they're always banging on about, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So, obviously, it's a very unpalatable idea. It's how to do... Why don't they just go, that's such a good idea. Yeah, we'll do that then. We've, got it, we've, had, it, we've had it all wrong for hundreds of years. It's obviously because there's a mentality of waging war on us. And this is the way it's waged, isn't it? It seems to yes. me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the bankers are not going to allow that because no. that takes away from their riches. I mean, mm-hmm. they're in this to, uh, you know, for their own sake, their own glory, their own, uh, you know... Building their own own wealth, um, yep. the wealth of the Rothschilds, for example, they're considered to be the wealthiest family in the world, and their wealth, I think, it's it's considered to be a well over five hundred trillion dollars. Uh, we don't even have a trillionaire in the United in. But in you can the only world. buy one steak at it once, is. can't you? You can only eat breakfast yeah. one at a time. I mean, yeah, well. I, I, uh, yeah, they have palaces and homes all over the world. Apparently, one palace is not enough for them. I don't know where they are. <laughs> I haven't found found anybody who's able to tell me where they are. Yeah. But I I have been told, you know, they've got homes and palaces all over oh, yeah. the world. Oh, I used to have a palace, Ken. It's boring, you know. You you, <laughs> you get lost in it, and then there's the call that cleaning. You go, what about all the cleaning? Who's going to do that? Oh, yeah, well, we'd have to get that sorted out. It's just palace yeah, this and they... palace that. What's up with them? It's weird. It is. It's very, very odd. No, no, we've always had palaces. We, we just love living in a palace. Well, well done to you. But I think, you know, if the maintenance budget fell to them directly, they had to do the repainting and, you know, get the woodwork, they'd soon lose their sort of love of all that kind of stuff if they had to actually personally keep the upkeep of it, you know, in, in ship-shape condition. I'm not saying that that's a solution to our problems i'm just being flippant and silly but um, (laughs) yeah um i've often thought that it's not so much that they want all the money although they do but the reason they want it is not because they can buy any more boats or this that and the other of course it's helpful i suppose it's useful their view really is right there's some power around and we're going to have it and no one else is that's one thought i think that's part of it it's power it's power and the other thing yes. is to make sure that people like you and I don't get enough power to become a serious problem to them. So we are kept under lock and key by the control of the monetary system, which keeps everybody in this kind of artificial space where you are, you know, uh, put into fear because the economy. You remember that thing? That, oh, no, the economy's <laughs> doing oh, that. Oh, yeah. Well, we better all start worrying about that immediately. And, of course, everybody's trained to do that most of their lives fretting pointlessly about this thing that is their enemy uh, but it's yeah. really because of in whose hands it lies that's that's kind of the issue about what they do and the other analogy i've often thought is like being drug addicts um the type of money that we are compelled to use currently but which we shouldn't be using this interest bearing debt money obviously results in a, a continual escalation of prices it's it's been going on for everybody's life that people now are unconscious about it really in any meaningful way and it's an accepted part of life that the prices are just always going to go up and it gives the news reporters something to talk about but that makes us a bit like we have to get a fix you know to get the same hit you need more money to get it and i think it creates uh 
a kind of pointless busyness in the whole of our civilization. People are busy doing things that are so unproductive and pointless purely to you know to acquire additional purchasing power and of course it's it's bred terrible things where they're willing to do these things even to the detriment of the health of the people that they live with they will take advantage of other people it breeds that kind of uh low-grade behavior because of the nature of the system you know so i think these all part of it yes i think you're absolutely right no question yeah, and we've all got, and it's Barbara Villiers who's to blame, you know. I think, um, <laughs> poor old Barbara. I'll go along with that. <laughs> yeah, we, if in doubt, blame Barbara Villiers. Blame Barbara. So, Barbara, you know, she's just wrought havoc. But interesting, I mean, I'm sure maybe in that document he goes through who was, who were her handlers and how it all came about. She obviously had access to the highest levels of this, that, and the other. The Coming back to this Republic thing, we had Rome 2,000 years ago, ends what? 1500 years ago something like that after that is america then the next republic is there a big long gap or have we got other governments that you're aware of or nations that were operating in a republican type way are we aware of any you know paul i don't know i'm, no, I'm I, not I aware know. of yeah. any no yeah. i'm not but yeah i don't know for sure yeah yeah um, i mean yeah uh the uh pound ezra pound who we mentioned earlier, you know, put uh, Mullins to work, good and proper. Um, I think as part of that process, he's the one that came across the Byzantine solution, or Byzantium, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I pronounce it Byzantine, but maybe it's Byzantine or something like that. But that's <laughs> that's an empire that lasted about, I think it's about 11, 1200 years the longest-lasting empire we know of. So, obviously, stability was taking place. The Eastern Roman Christian Empire centred on Constantinople. And uh, they forbid aliens to occupy any positions of power in the management of their nation. They couldn't occupy positions in education, in government, in banking, and in law. And that seems to be a salutary lesson somewhere along the line. I mean, if you allow people outside of your own culture and race to take up positions of power, historically, it doesn't seem to turn out that well. Um, and that's an understatement. It seems to turn out very, very badly. Um, the situation in America with the supposed melting pot of america something which i don't really buy into you ask me and you say well who are americans and i go well it's the european people that settled america that's what i'm probably going to say until i drop dead someone might come up with some other idea about it <laughs> right but i'm i'm going to be saying that and of course after the war between the states everything has been going into sort of free fall on every single level because it was, I think it was the late 1800s where suddenly you were determined, it was determined that America was this melting pot of everybody. But I don't think that's not really how it started, is it? That's not really the intention of the founding fathers, or was it? No, no, it, it, it is absolutely not. The intention of the founding fathers, I mean, of course, founding fathers all came from Europe, them or their, descend, uh, uh, their uh, ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, but to them, um, to be an American meant if you came over here, you assimilated into our society. Mm -hmm. You took on our religion, you took on our customs, our habits, you assimilated to where you 
became an American and not a German living in America or a Mexican living in America, speaking Mexican or speaking German over here. And I do have uh, uh, part of a chapter in my book on immigration, and that's very, very strongly the point that I try to make in there, is that uh, I think we're wrong to exclude uh, other people from immigrating here. Uh, certainly the open border situation we have is a, it's, is a crisis of gargantuan proportions. That has got to be stopped. Of course, it's being done intentionally, purposely by the global elite uh, because they want America to be this melting pot. Um, they want to break down American culture. I don't know if you've been hearing over there about tearing down statues of George mm-hmm. Washington and particularly yep. uh, 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 generals and, and people who were in the war between the states. Uh, it, it's they're trying to destroy American culture. And that's not what a founding fathers envisioned. Their vision was enhancing American culture. Um, from the people that are coming over here contributing but becoming a part of American culture. And anyway, in that chapter, one of the things I state, if you're going to immigrate to this country, you must speak English, period. You can't Mm -hmm. speak English, even if it's broken English. Sorry, not good enough. Go back home, learn English, then you can apply to come over here. So the whole thing of this melting pot, I don't buy into it. It's wrong. It is not what our founding fathers envisioned. No, it's one of the most um, uh, charged topics to talk about under current situations, simply because if you, you know, I, I really view the whole situation as being a war on us, on our people. I don't really view it as a war on any other people. I think it's a war that's being waged on us by an infiltration primarily into the banking system, but therefore everywhere else. Because once they're in there, then they can buy up the courts, then you can pervert the justice in the land, then you can appoint your own toadies, which has been going on for hundreds of years all over the place. They then sit on non-governmental organisations and pass all this nonsense to improve democracy, whilst, of course, accelerating (laughs) us towards communism, which is what the whole purpose of it is, and to effectively lock down the productivity of the people, because... For whatever reason, we are not. So I've got my own ideas on that, but that's not really. It's a bit too late in the show to go into all of that. But the that's the way I view it. I mean, even with this COVID thing, I don't really view it as a problem for the rest of the world. It may well be, but if you look at the problem as it as manifest for us, that's obviously where we're going to feel it. And uh, it's the thing as well with the sort of the news cycle. All of the news, and this has been like this for years over here, is about international things. There's very little things that actually concern the welfare of the British. Seriously, it's always about drama and nonsense or some alarming thing. There's nothing encouraging. It's intended not to. I know that psychologically we have a bias towards terrible news. Just give me terrible news. You know, whenever people have tried to set up a newspaper giving them nothing but good news, it's like, oh, I don't want to know that. You know, I just want to know all the the horrible stuff, you know. just It makes me feel better that the horrible stuff is happening to someone else and not happening to me, which is a pretty sort of shabby condition, but it appears to hold some truth to it. Um 
I'll just give a shout out, by the way, to listeners. If you want to call in and put a question to uh, Ken, I'm here with Ken Carter, the author of A Nation Upside Down. We've been having a cracking chat for the last couple of hours or so. If you want to uh, call into the show, we've got about 15, 20 minutes of it left here on WBN and on Speak Free and elsewhere. Uh, just go to paulenglishlive.com and click the link there. Or if you really want to know what the link is, it's paulenglishlive.com forward slash call c-a-l-l and you'll come into the studio here and you can let rip in a nice way of course so if you want to do that that's fine if you don't that's okay too i've just been checking out some of the comments on rumble some really good stuff uh coming through sussex man making some excellent comments as usual act a-c-t a corporation tax that's the acronym for it hence referred to as a bill which is very a good use of language. Thanks for that, Sussex man. That's excellent stuff. And, and he goes on to say, Acts are not laws. They are statutes and require consent so that people have to be tricked into giving consent to form a contract. And it's government by deceit at every level, is it not, Ken? That's correct. Yeah, he's absolutely right on that. People are duped into consenting, and consenting makes the law. Yeah, it does. The law, which is to their benefit and not so much to ours. Um, or I, sh- I should move. He was I should really use the word statute because he's absolutely correct. I mean, we're ruled by statutes and regulations now. Uh, you can't really call it law. You got to get back to common law to to call it law. Mm-hmm. We don't have common law. I've not had common law since before the war between the states. How would we go? What? Do, how would we go about getting it back? You know, when we were talking earlier about numbers of people, it seems to me, and this is another theme that I keep coming back to again here, uh, is that the decentralisation of power is absolutely key in this. Uh, I mean, uh, the growth of a centralised national government in this country is a bit like a cancer. Literally, more and more power goes into fewer hands, they then supposedly brilliantly redistribute the wealth and the opportunities around the country, which, of course, they don't. They don't do any of that. Uh, but that's the story that's put out. And on a local level, people become disconnected from having decisions or the decision-making power over how their own lives are supposed to go. These things are now imposed from a centralised system. Um, and in the past, in this country, the, the king could not just go off to war if he wanted to. He couldn't just boss people around and do that. He had to work bloody hard with all these other sort of dukes and this, that and the other if they were going to give him any men. He had to sort of offer something back, which seems to me at least right. a, a way of putting some kind of check and balance against them. And this is obviously what's been removed. You used to have it under a republic, these checks and measures, with your three branches of government, but they don't seem to operate properly anymore. All of them have been chewed up to some degree. Yes. Well, as I stated before, when Congress was brought back into session in 1861, he was brought back under the authority of Lincoln Mm -hmm. as the uh, commander-in-chief of the army in the executive branch of the government. So we no longer have a legislative branch in government here. Congress is under the president. The president uh, rules by executive order. Essentially, he's a dictator. And they've essentially bought out the Supreme Court and the entire court system. Now, I'll just say, just very briefly, get into this legal system here. It might be a topic for another show uh, sometime, Paul, if, if you want. But the original 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America was called the Title of Nobility Amendment. And it forbade 
anyone with a title, such as Sir or Duke or Esquire, to hold public office, forbade mm -hmm. it. In mm -hmm. fact, they could be even deported from the country and not allowed reentry. Well, when a lawyers have the title of Esquire, Esquire, and uh, when they take their oath to the bar, they are taking an oath, pledging an oath to a foreign power, the International Bar Association out of the city of London. So number one, they're committing treason just by uh, pledging an oath to the bar. Number two, they should not be in um, any kind of a public office because of the original 13th Amendment to the Constitution. The 13th Amendment mysteriously disappeared uh, at around the time of Lincoln. There are still a few books, Constitution books out there that you can find it in. Very, very few. But it was replaced by the new 13th Amendment, which was the 13th Amendment um, or the Amendment um, um, abolishing slavery. Mm -hmm. So you get rid of the Bar Association, you get rid of attorneys. We do not have lawyers in this country. We have attorneys, and that's a whole other subject I could get into, but we need lawyers, and once you get rid of the Bar Association, then it becomes uh, an e a far more easier task of reestablishing common law. We need, um, <clears throat> we need obviously... Uh groups of people that are going to do things it's knowing just quite what to do i think most of the problem is kind of a defeat in the mind before these things even start off there's sort of this huge government thing and trying to break down what their power is it seems to me a great part of it is the compliance that most of the people that we live with give to government they comply with it too rapidly this lack of um questioning or this uh sort of oh i've just got to go along to get along this sort of blithe indifference to everything and uh from a from a modern point of view it's understandable how people have been brought to this condition because it's been slow particularly since uh, really the end of world war ii there's been just this increase apparently in the quality of living there has i'm pretty sure there has you know but back yes. here in england yes. 100 years ago most people's toilet was at the end of the garden which actually now that i think about it's not such a bad idea really to be quite honest <laughs> fresh. it's actually not such a bad idea but you know people didn't like that particularly in the winter it's a bit distress distressing you know and uh, all that kind of stuff but but that's what was going on you know and people didn't live as long because they were i don't know why they didn't live as long but they were just worked much harder in all sorts of ways and were treated with disdain and it's taken a long time for that to come away and then now it's a bit like living in a gilded cage now people are so you could say from our perspective so spoiled rotten with everything everything's so easy to do that they're now threatened that that's going to be taken away from them and I've, I've grown used to a more comfortable life physically you don't have to have the same sort of levels of endurance or the the ability to cope with physical hardship like we used to do even a hundred years back you know everybody has a car or several yeah. cars this that and the other well we're going to take those away from you and this that and the other so it's a different sort of control but it's in many ways it's possibly even more effective because it's control of the mind of so many of our kith and kin it seems to me no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we've become not only spoiled, but more importantly, we've become brainwashed. Yeah. And we've succumbed to that the average American, well, the average Brit too, I would say, has oh, yes. succumbed to the brainwashing of the global elite. Yeah. 
So it's we don't true. even question government. But yet here we, we are, we, you we and me, we're questioning it, aren't we? And and many people yeah. are listening are questioning it. There's definitely been a growth in the questioners, those with a question mark growing ever more strongly burnt on their forehead. There, there absolutely has. It's wonderful in a way. I, you know, I'm yes. just sort of impatient. We just want it sped up. We want it all sorted out next Monday morning, please, if you could. You know. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and along those lines, let, let me just say, hey, if you're out there listening and get the book tell other people about the book i mean spread the word um I, you know it, it's not something that can be advertised in the mainstream media mainstream media here is all owned by the global elite and they're not gonna you know push something like this but we got to get the word out and everything that's in the book i believe paul applies to britain as well maybe oh, yes. i'm wrong but you know, it, it's, you know, we're talking different names, a little bit different circumstances, but it yep. applies over there as well. Yeah, it does. I mean, that, that city of London has got a lot to answer for. Whether anybody can make it answer for what it's part of and what it does <clears throat> is uh, is difficult to say. It's because of these other sort of agencies that are at work suppressing and disturbing how we congregate and come together. I mean, over here, there's they're masters at it. You know, it's been developed that many of the psychological tactics that they use in warfare against the enemy are actually being employed against the civilian population and have been for a long time. A long um, time, yeah. A long time, you know, and you just go, well, this is the way life is, but it's not sound. You can see that it's unsound in so many different ways. There's never any emphasis, of course, in public communication about the value and goodness of families. There's none. Everything That's is right. about problem. There's never anything that the family is absolutely an amazing thing. Uh, it's an amazing institution that you only get by working at it. And and the more the longer you work at it and hold it together, the richer it gets. There's no talk about that. Old people talk about, well, you, oh, I've got to leave my husband. I've got to do this and this. And that. Well, you know, if I was in charge, I'd be awful because I wouldn't let people get divorced. I'd say, you can't. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Well, no, no, I don't it, like him anymore. He doesn't like me. So what? <laughs> should have, you should have chosen the, better. Tough. Live with <laughs> the goal of the global elite is to destroy the family. Uh, One of the and, main and tenets of international communism, it absolutely is. If yes, we think about everything yes. that we're talking about here, all these problems, every single one of them undermines the value and quality of family life. That's exactly what it results in, in every single sphere. The reduction. Every single, pl every single plank of the communist manifesto is in, has been implemented in this country. Every single plank. Yep. So and we are too. well on our way. Yeah, we're well on our way to world communism. Yeah. Hey, I've got a caller in right late. It's Paul, actually, who's just joined us. Paul, welcome very late to the show. I'm sorry, I've only just saw you. Uh, uh, I'm here with Ken, and thank you for the mixing of the track, the country version. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. I'm happy to do it, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mixing was great. <laughs> oh, that, that first song, Paul, you really need to send that first song to Ken because no, no, you can't have it. Song is just, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You know, you really need to send the first song to Ken because it 
It is goosebumps from head to foot. It is. Yeah. Okay, there's a treat. For, well, what yes. I was thinking, you see, I was going to be coy, Paul, and I was going to say that when Ken's on next, which probably won't be too long, we'll run it then. Okay, but if Ken can't wait, if you're so eager for him to get the present, I'll make sure that he gets a copy. Okay. <laughs> Before we get around to Yeah, yeah. So that that's the thing redone at four thirty two. I just didn't have time to fully set it up today. But Paul, thank you very much as usual for doing these things on the fly. And uh, I managed to be able to control that bit, but not the start of the show. I completely buggered that up again. So my record at the start is is pretty bad actually, all things considered. But yeah. Um so, uh, well, I mean, we're down to the last couple and a half minutes here on WBN. So Paul, if you've got anything to say, we've only got about two and a half minutes left, yeah. Anybody that showed up to the show late, it was brilliant. <laughs> it's, well, they only had to turn up about two minutes late, so that was fine. Somebody said they had turned up late. Have I missed anything? And I thought, no, you've, no, you've just got the bit that's actually that's organized properly. So all that kind of Who's stuff. Showing up on time. Ken, any more books then? <laughs> no, that's the only one so far, but I'll tell you, it's. I'm thinking about... Uh, writing a book on the original 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Yeah. Because if that amendment were in force or effect, oh boy, how our history since the world, uh, the war between the states would have changed dramatically. Um, so I may be, uh, and it would be much shorter than this one, of course, but I think it might be a very important work. So uh, it's in the back of my mind. I, I, I may get started on that soon. Well, that's interesting. So you haven't had enough punishment, obviously. That's what you're saying. <laughs> now, I have written another book, which is a family history book. And um, the Brits listening will like this. My family, of course, is from England. Uh, I've been able to trace my roots back to 1490. Yeah. Uh, some castle in England. I don't remember what it is. I'd have to go back and look, look in my book here. You're probably one of these so lords you, and dukes, you know. You're going to get barred from yeah. your own country if they trace it back. You'll be done for. <laughs> That's right. You'll be done for. Uh, well, Ken, it's yeah, been great yeah. having you here for the past couple of hours. It's been brilliant. And as I said, I'm looking forward to having you back again real soon. It's been wonderful. Paul, thanks for calling in. Listeners and everything here on... Uh, uh, WBN324, we're winding up. I'll be back again same time next week at, uh, what is the same time next week? 3 p.m. 3 p.m. US Eastern, 8 p.m. in the UK. Uh, the stream is going to end here live on the radio, but it'll chug along a little bit on Rumble, as it usually does, maybe for a little bit longer. But thank you very much, Ken. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate your having me. Wonderful. <laughs>